Hello and welcome to your favorite comic book YouTube channel, Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Jim Rugg. I'm Ed Piscor. Going to continue our journey through the Comics Journal, this time February 1977, number 38. A lot of good stuff in this issue. We're going to see the DC price increase, an incredible Gil Kane interview that I cannot wait to unpack. Um, and you're going to kind of start to see the Comics Journal continuing to move in the direction of what I think of as the mature Comics Journal. In one issue, we looked at 37 last week. In one issue, the magazine has evolved aesthetically. It's laid out much, much better, much uh, cleaner. Uh, the Blood and Thunder letters column makes its debut. I don't think it was called Blood and Thunder last time. And there are a lot of firsts in this uh, issue that we are going to unpack and discover. All right, Ed, let's dive into this comics journal issue. But first, I want to remind everybody, we do have a Cartoonist Kayfabe Patreon. And the King Kayfabers at the top level of the Cartoonist Kayfabe Patreon are watching us record this video in real time. Uh, always a pleasure to share these recording sessions with the King Kayfabers. And uh, if you haven't joined our Patreon already, check it out and find the level that works for you. I also want to let everybody know we will be in Baltimore the second week in September is Baltimore Comic-Con, and we will be there with all of our wares. All right, without further ado, let's dive into this one, Ed. There's a lot to unpack here, so we'll, we'll kind of move through here. One thing that stood out to me, I always talk about the ads. I love them. Even those feel different than the, uh, the last issue, which is sort of the start of the modern era of comics journals. So it's interesting to see how fast they are moving through these these parts, you know, to kind of shape this into what we will come to know as the comics journal. You know, it's fascinating because like, so it's not like they're in charge of the ads. Like these are being sent to them. So maybe we can track the, the success of comics with the graphic design of these ads from the, for these satellite pro productions. Like uh, that last issue, it was all, you know, very small fanzine kind of stuff. This is a pretty reasonable looking book. It is. And you know what's great with this stuff is seeing the names. Mark Grunewald and Dean Mullaney. Mark Grunewald goes on to become a very celebrated editor at Marvel Comics. Dean Mullaney, of course, probably around this time or shortly after, Sab starts Eclipse Comics. Saber is out. Yeah, so it, it's fun to see like where these guys, what the origins of some of the influential comics makers, uh, not just creators, but also the editors and publishers, where they come from. And a lot of them come through these kinds of publications. Also, Ed, if you know any of these books as we go through these ads, uh, call them out. Because that last one looked like something we might find on a shelf at a, in a store like Ides. Yeah, I got, I got good stuff for you, man, that, that might have slipped, slipped your, your radar. Okay, so Rocket's Blast Comic Collector. Last, last issue, we were looking through this, and I was like, that has some significance. It came up on the channel. I don't remember what it was. And then as we were recording other videos, I remembered it was mentioned by Jaime Hernandez... And that is where his first published works appeared before fan art in comics journals or any of those publications. So Rocket's Blast, very respected, like issue 139. Yes. It's been out a minute. I was going to say, too, we've gotten a number of fanzines from uh, Kayfabe mail boxes over the years. Uh, I have a bunch of these RBCCs. You know, I think we usually divvy them up whenever like a stack of fanzines come in. You take half, I take half. Um, they may be something that we unpack an issue here or there. It yeah. makes me curious, like, 
tracking down when is Jaime's first appearance. Um, possible we have that one, but but I'd be curious to look at some of the fanzines as we uh, as we continue this trip through comics history. Yeah, totally. Even this piece of art we're looking at right there—that's Kerry Gamble. You know, he'll have a he'll have a nice uh, c comic book career moving forward. And just looking at those pages, I mean, it's just beautifully illustrated work completely professional yeah it looks it looks terrific but but it speaks to the era of comics that we're at and i just saw a michael golden conversation on online somewhere and he was talking about like the 77 era because he's mentioned in here he's he's in comics like in dc you had to have like lighting and you had to go the neil adams approach uh but stick to the Neil Adams approach there, there, there wasn't much room anywhere else for any other kinds of approach but then marvel was Kirby. Right. It makes so much sense that it works that way. Um, and we're going to get into that as we go through the Gil Kane interview, where it's like, whatever is successful, they're able, the, these companies, the non-creatives are able to duplicate, yeah. but it's not, they're not going to come up with that new idea. As long as it's in here, Jimmy, we should make note of the paid circulation because I think it was about 8,000 last issue. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and noteworthy, February 77, this is whenever I'm born, to give you everybody an idea of like how old this is. I know a lot of our audience is about our age, so that's about the time period that we're talking about here. And it's funny, I have a ton of comics journals, both digital and print, and I always am looking at the back issues to see like which issues should I try to track down yes. or what interview is in there. And at this stage, it's all nostalgia. It's mostly nostalgia journals for the uh, back catalog. You see a couple of comics journals, but half the list is nostalgia journals. It's true. So. There's a super noteworthy piece here. This guy, Greg uh, Tulubitz. Uh, first off, I Googled his name, and he's still in the game. Convention organizer doing a bunch of stuff. But check these prices out for stuff that he wants in fine or near mint. Look at the X-Men's. GS1. He's willing to pay $0.25 cents for Giant Size X-Men number one. Amazing. Wow. That's so interesting because we, we have stories of collectors. You know, that's one of those early books that I guess collectors of a certain age, maybe the second generation of dealers, that was a that was a strong book. And it was when do you come in on it, right? If yeah. you buy those things, as many as you can buy at a quarter, boy, you'd be sitting pretty today. Absolutely, man. Now, uh, with the news watch, as, as, I, as I got into this, I realized the narrative that we're going to be telling as we go consecu consecutively with Comics Journal is... You might remember the ads, and this might be a good place to like put up the famous like ad page uh, where it's the DC explosion, because maybe it would not be called an implosion if they weren't promoting so heavily the DC explosion right. uh, set, set of books and, and things that they were going to start to do. So, so uh, that's the narrative we're going to tell. The implosion happens in 78. We're in February 77 here, and they are moving and shaking, and, and, and DC is used to run distribution for Marvel Comics, and there was a set fixed number of books that they were willing to deal with when it came to Marvel. That deal lapsed, and then Marvel started to like McDonald's their comics. Yes. And and they, they took a giant, the lion's share of, of, of the market, and DC at this point is freaking struggling to try to figure things out, and we're gonna lay out a bunch of different shit that they're trying to do it's yeah it's really interesting to, to see kind of what is happening here 17 books from dc have been canceled in the 16 month period but 15 have been added they've also added pages to the standard issues and they bumped up the price so there's a lot of moving parts that are going on here and it's it's documented in very minute detail 
Yeah. Uh, sometimes there's some attention to the creators that are being moved around or who's working on what books are editing, but just the overall like cancel 17 books, but also new books that we're trying to launch, trying to get some, some sales on. And you can kind of see a company that's just, I hate to say floundering, but, yeah. but but seems to lack a coherent direction. It's it's that it's that thing that Bourdain talks about in that Kitchen Confidential when you know entrepreneurial new people are are opening restaurants and they realize like they're not getting an audience, so they start to flounder. It, it changes from from a French cuisine restaurant to a hamburger joint, and then you're starting to do two for one deals and just your you know good money after bad kind of shit. And and you're just you're just losing. And there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of bullshit that goes on in in, in the back end here. I think if you uh, read that uh, untold Marvel untold stories, there was a kind of gentleman's agreement between Marvel and DC to like increase page count and have you know dollar books or something. And Marvel reneged on that and just kept you know thirty five right. cent books while DC did this thing. And it kind of jack them up a bit one thing i was surprised about reading this issue yeah. is how much attention is given to distribution and production because this whole story of 40 page comics i we've love got it james warren weighing in on like it used to be you had to do 16 page signatures but he's speculating that they are actually doing uh half of one signature in order to get the eight pages to go two 16 page signatures and then eight more pages and it's just weird minutiae i love it like i'm, <laughs> I'm so into it because it, it like they even have to like break down like it's called a signature like yes. like this is the earliest days of that level of inside baseball and i don't doubt james warren is talking about that from experience Cause, oh yeah because like you know the the spirit magazines where richard corbin would color like a fresh story that would just be eight pages on the inside so he knows the deal and fantagraphics will, will put that to use in the future when they give clouds like a couple color pages and stuff it's it's this like it's this alchemy that's done at the printer where like these guys have instructions to like cut this signature in half and take this section over there and put it you know with with those other books so that you could get you know for two two color section for the price of one kind of makes me wonder who's reading a magazine like this at this point also because it's such inside comics production speak you know like mike gold who i think is like a production editor or something at dc at this time says the format change saves the company money by altering the ratio of newsprint to the more expensive cover stock thus keeping the average price per comic down like it's I mean, they're counting pennies, uh, you know, at this stage. And that comes up again with distribution because like these newsstands, as we said last issue, the newsstands would rather sell a dollar book than a 35 cent book. They yeah. make more money that way. And that's that's a concern for these publishers. Yeah, yeah, but, but I'm totally on board. And calling it the Comics Journal, it, it gives the appearance of a trade magazine at the deepest level. Yeah, listen to this. This is, uh, again, Mike Gold. The industry made a big mistake by not raising prices in the 50s. Right. They should have raised the price instead of dropping the page count from 48 pages to 32. That's wild, you know, like... I love this. This is a different era, you know, again, like I'm, I'm born, I'm zero years old at this point. So they're referring to golden age. They're referring to like the fifties and it's just all of this stuff that by the time I'm there, none of this is the conversation coming up here pretty soon, uh, will be the first mention of feel Suling, And it's in relation, like, you know, they're talking about prices and, and the price increase and things and feel Suling is, uh, they have no, name for the direct market 
it's it, I think they call him maybe a wholesaler or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, they say that he works exclusively, you know, with a uh, with a uh, three hundred uh, direct like, like uh, three hundred comic shops or or uh, yes. I forget the language. Like it's it's if, yeah, you, I think if, it's if you see it, specialty shops. Specialty shops. Is what yeah, they call yeah. Them. It's, it's so so that I mean, Phil Sewing is Seagate Distribution. Uh, that is the first mention. Here it is. Comics wholesaler Phil Soling, who sells to 300 retail outlets across the country each month. So, so the, it's a first indicator of uh, of the direct market, and and uh, it's a very important piece of this conversation uh, because um, we'll, when we get to Last Kingdom, Bud Plant factors in there. He's Phil Soling's the the East Coast New York distributor. Bud Plant might not even consider himself a distributor at that point. He might consider himself just a wholesale dealer or something. But uh, these guys are in play and the direct market exists in its infant stages. It's, it's so cool. This is fun too that James Warren, of course, Warren Publications, the black and white magazines like Eerie and Creepy, Vampirilla, things like that. Uh, one of the major publishers. So he's involved too whenever they're talking about the business and what's going on with the industry. And uh, pissed off, he says, Janet Kahn has attempted unsuccessfully to steal two of our people from us. Yeah. Fascinating, dude. Fascinating. They talk with her uh, in there somewhere, and, and she's mentioning how the old time, like when she got in the game for, with DC Comics, those guys wanted to um, do reprints a lot so that they could keep costs down like to them like comics was comics and they have this giant catalog of comics over the past i guess four decades at that point and uh so why not just uh reprint a lot of that stuff and she mentions that like there's a nuclear half-life to it and so like if you keep reprinting that stuff like you're going to get diminishing returns and more diminishing returns and the value is in r d like continue to create new stuff and, and, and see what the exciting things are. They also talk about the 50% profit margin for retailers became the new industry standard, giving a history of like price increases and Marvel and DC kind of like playing the games you talk about, Ed. And, and it's Marvel that, that instituted that because uh, DC had it at like 40. Uh, Marvel took, took the hit and sold way more volume. So then DC had to, uh, you know, join the club that 50 percent profit is about where we're still at but now you know in the direct market so it's a little bit different in that it's non-returnables but it's interesting just to see like it's chronicled if anybody's into the counting of, of of the prices which does play a role in the history of comics no doubt about it chronicled through these early comics journals yeah with the marvel stuff we interrupt today's video to tell everyone we will be at baltimore comic-con september 8th 9th and 10th we also want to remind everyone these videos are brought to you by the Cartoonist Kayfabe Patreon. There are three levels there that will get you access to our videos ahead of everybody else. And the King Kayfaber level, you'll get all the videos first, and you'll get to sit in on the recording sessions. These videos are also brought to you by the books that we make. Ed Piscor's Hip Hop Family Tree Omnibus, collecting all of the Hip Hop Family Tree comics in one handsome volume, along with 140 extra pages, will be out this fall. The proof is here, and it is shipping now to comic book stores and bookstores near you. 
put your name on a copy ahead of time if you want to make sure you don't miss out. Red Room, Crypto Killers. The final series of Red Room comics is now being serialized. Issues 1, 2, and 3 are available. 4 will be out shortly. There are two trade paperbacks of Red Room. They are all self-contained. So buy whichever one you see first and enjoy yourself. X-Men Grand Design is going to be collected. All three volumes in one oversized volume this fall from Marvel Comics. Put your name on a pre-order for X-Men Grand Design if you want to get that in time for Christmas. My latest books, True Crime Funnies, three nonfiction comics, True Crime and Wrestling Comics. These are available on my website or on my Patreon. Street Angel Deadliest Girl Alive from Image Comics, collecting eight complete stories of the Deadliest Girl Alive, the Plain Janes for the young reader, young adult reader in your life, and the Hulk Grand Design Treasury Edition is available now wherever books and comics are sold. And now back to today's video. With the Marvel stuff, uh, it's the first mention of newcomer. You know, they're, they're, these sections are all about creative teams and who's pivoting to right. where and blah, 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 blah. I think it might be the very next page where it's a newcomer, Frank Miller, Frank Miller doing a Doc Samson story. Uh, so this is a 1977 publication. That Doc Samson story shows up in Hulk Annual 11 in 1982. Right. That tells the story of how inventory stories were, were handled, where they would have a drawer full of these kinds of stories. Some other interesting names, right after Frank Miller, uh, Tom DeFalco will write a two-part Avengers illustrated by Jim Mooney. I don't know if DeFalco is a newcomer here, but I mean, goes on to be the editor-in-chief at Marvel pretty much whenever I'm reading, com start reading comics, you know, a decade, maybe a couple years more than that later. So kind of interesting to track these names. But how about this one for a name from the uh, cartoonist kayfabe? Uh, outlaw past. Alice in Wonderland, penciled by Ken Langriff. And that is not the case. Right. I looked that one up. That was when I was like, ooh, I don't have that Ken Langriff. So, Nobody does. So uh, is it Tony Dizaniga? Yeah. Has a studio. And uh, he's got a bunch of dudes. Like, Marvel goes to them at in times of need. Action Art Studios. So, And Ken Langriff was a part of that. Oh, okay. So he did not do... Because I had to do the research, because I was like, "How how does this exist?" Yeah. So so there's that um, there's that Hulk Wolvie story mm -hmm. that exists that like Perez Langreff inked over Perez, I think, or vice versa. That that gets filtered through the whatever that studio is called. Now the very final issue of that Marvel Classics line, of which we looked at one issue, the Moby Dick, I think, right? Like that's Alex Nino. Yes. Uh, the very last issue is a Christmas Carol. The artist is Diverse Hands. This was filtered through Dizaniga's studio, and uh, the the bulk of the duties is Ken Landgraf. And you and you could interesting throughout the thing you could see Ken Landgraf. So he doesn't get a name credit, but if you got that Christmas Carol issue of Marvel Classics, which is the last issue, maybe thirty six, uh, that's a Ken Landgraf comic. Um, other notes from me, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind will be adapted into a KISS format comic magazine. So that format is one, more expensive, which is attractive to newsstand dealers. Yeah. And two, full color. And I don't know whether it's using like a blue line method or what that is, but it's early days of experimenting with different color and color reproduction, especially on a higher end book. Right. Which um, is going to be kind of run through a lot of the type in this issue where it feels like comics are moving towards that graphic novel format but maybe don't even realize that's exactly what it is or how they're thinking but it's production there's a lot of emphasis on production and on this pricing thing um you know star wars continues to be this gigantic seller 
but they continue to struggle with deadlines. And they make a note here, it costs them $300 an hour to have World Color Press hold the presses. That's so cool because we know we know that that happens, that, that you get, get charged for that. To have a dollar figure is freaking fascinating yes. because it's not like... It's not like a newspaper where it's like, stop the presses for a minute. Like, we got to, like, get this new article in there. It could be a day. Like, it's almost like, you know, if you break a lease at an apartment or something, like, you're going to be paying rent until they fill that gap. So, like, Marvel might have to spend, you know, thousands of dollars. It's very true. Like, if you missed the day, you might have had that day reserved for you. Totally. So you're paying for the day. Yeah, you're, you're paying for it all. And it was so cool that that's, that that's in there because... Uh, you know, Joe Kubert beat into our heads. You miss a deadline. You are costing money to the company and uh, you very likely can be blackballed from, from the industry. And keep in mind, we're talking about nickels and dime prices yeah, 35 in the cent comics. article. There's a lot of nickels and dimes if you delay a book a day at 300 bucks an hour. And Marvel is so delayed and, and, and so late with books that they, they're opting to produce books that don't have the month on yes. on the cover because they're so late. Uh, this right here, this, Marvel has stopped putting cover dates on its books. Yeah. I don't remember that time period. I don't think that lasted too long. Right. So the Marvel that we have here, we didn't say it last time, and we probably should have. But Star Wars completely gave Marvel Comics Company triage and gave it some blood, saved the day. It, it might have completely gone away. If it was, uh, if it wasn't for for Star Wars at that point, by by all accounts, and also so many books are late, so many things are fucked up. This is creating the situation. This is creating the the, the catastrophe that Jim Shooter is going to inherit and fix. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting to see this kind of stuff because again, it just feels very inside baseball, and I can't imagine that guys would talk about most of this stuff today on record you know as secret as all these companies are like you'd have a hard time getting this kind of information out of people um alternative comics publishers so this is really fun to kind of see like where things are heavy metal gets some coverage you know richard corbin has mentioned several times weird heroes number eight will be 120 pages long and will feature stories by howie chaikin chaikin is listed a lot like that dude is working all over the place pretty yeah. pretty hot young young talent but i had to look up weird heroes and it's a paperback format so they would do a series of those, and I don't know what the interiors look like, if they were like spot illustrations and prose, or if they were comics or what, but you see them kind of playing with this stuff. Gray Morrow doing the illustrated Roger Zelazny. Yeah. Um, fascinating book. Look that one up, and it's like several short stories. Morrow is uh, adapting all of them, but in different styles. A couple are black and white, a couple are full color. They're kind of like that magazine size. Empire, graphic novel, science fiction novel, written by Chip Delaney and illustrated by uh, Howie Chaikin. Uh, will be previewed in heavy metal i have that i'm pretty sure i have the empire and it's beautiful art but it's that thing of still trying to figure out like prototype adult comics yeah where the format is um typeset right but then like these great color painted illustrations uh you know in a series of them on a page so it's it's just really interesting to see like where alternative comic publishers are in 1977. Totally. And some and somewhere in here, like Star Reach is still going on. Yes. Uh somewhere in here is mentioned finally of uh, uh of Eclipse books yes. like with, with Saber. 
Yeah. Also appearing, and this is a heavy metal note, appearing in that book will be extracts from Saber, the McGregor Galacy graphic novel published by Eclipse Enterprises. So that's, so, a, that's another first for us uh, in, in TCJ land. Gasm is right. listed here as a name of a new heavy metal type magazine. Name some of the characters uh, who are drawn in there. Uh, Mark Wheatley, Ben Catcher. Yes. Um, James O'Barr is also in Gasm. Yeah. Uh, ben Catcher is noteworthy for anybody at home that's unfamiliar I used to read him in an architecture magazine. He had the last page in Metropole magazine in full color, but it's sort of watercolor and washes yeah. and ink lines in a very like urban style. So it would be about cities, histories, uh, culture of cities, and the people that occupy these cities. It's so weird to think of him as a gasm or heavy metal type artist. Totally, and, it, and he's doing sci-fi type stuff. And then uh, Byron Price is uh, worth noting because he's at in the early forefront of graphic novel publishing and stuff he's connected to that weird heroes number eight and um you know we'll probably see his name as we continue going through these graphic novels fascinating time and it's cool to see artists who i would call mainstream or big name artists that are trying these different formats because sure. gil kane's going to talk about it later this issue yeah but it was a conversation that some of these pros were having clearly yeah um, this is kind of fun just to see the Comic Art Fan Awards and kind of how they break down some of the categories. You know, fan favorite artists, so they separate kind of professionals from the fan artists yeah. to talk about how much fan press is happening. Undergrounds are represented. Just just very interesting all around that this exists. Hopefully we'll see results of that. You know, maybe that'll <laughs> right. be reported on in a future issue. I always like to see, like, what was held up at the time, what was successful at the time. So here's your Blood and Thunder, a very famous column in Comics Journal, which are just the letters from the readers. Often pros uh, will end up writing into Blood and Thunder to rebut content of previous Comics Journal's issues. Yeah. Nothing much stuck out for me uh, on, on this run. Comics reviews, um, I don't have too much to say. Steel number one and Firestorm number one. These are some of the new DC books. Yeah. And, and and think about that era. You got stuff like Claw. You got that like Richard Dragon, you know, Kung Fu Fighter, uh, Karate Kid. Like all these comics that like when you're digging an old DC comics and you're like, this was a comic? Like this is your explosion, implosion era stuff. And this is also to me where comics were that comics journals trying to write about good comics and it's like they're stuck with there's nothing so, still because of what is not out there so they really hot shot the front end with comics talk and there's so little happening in comics that they can talk about it all in a couple of pages and then they're, they're going to fill the rest of this magazine up with like movie reviews cartoon reviews this women's lib in dc comics by marilyn joe bethke i can't say 100% sure but that's a kayfabe name and this article was written by a dude like it is an like what one would call these days an incel kind of uh rhetoric about how corny it is to do they have a name for like the social justice type type energy that's that's being put in the comic and how ham-fisted it is but this is like Gary or Kim or somebody writing in a female name like some somebody some dude wrote this and they're trying to sell it better by having it as a as a chick name it's interesting whenever they talk about art in these for in, in these reviews because you can tell like that's a conversation that's not um it hasn't it hasn't uh, developed right you know like the language around that but it talks about Joe Staten and Joe Orlando um inability apparent inability to work well together and they hit it a couple times like it's in the intro paragraph and then it comes back again whenever they get closer into the artwork 
and those two apparently just did not, at least according to this reviewer, fit too well. Looking at some of the ads... I'm this not... is great. Monkey's Retreat. Yeah. I bought books from them at CXC in Columbus last... I feel like uh, you got your copy of Ralph there. I did. Yeah, yeah I did. Uh, an amazing retailer. I don't think he has a retail space anymore, but I think he has like storage of all these books. Yeah. Um, Chris Pitzer bought a Rank Xerox with a drawing by Libertory in it, <laughs> right. a Catalan edition, which he kind of stole right out from under me, Chris, so I still have that on your record. Uh, but but an interesting retailer and still kind of active in some ways and at some point had a store in Manhattan. Right, so, yeah, that's right. Kind of cool to see this stuff. But then you see Well News Service Wholesale Distributor. You start to see these other distributors popping up. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Like uh, it would be Chuck Rosansky who really pushed against the Phil Suling monopoly and created a situation where it was possible. Well, to... you mentioned Bud Plant too. And I think at this point, Bud Plant is doing a lot of wholesale for the West Coast. Totally. Uh, noteworthy stuff in here, though, man. Uh, American Splendor number two. Yes. So it's the first mention of of that. Crom and Picar. Yeah. Um, Eric Khan, we, we talked a about plus. that. Man, I have a lot of this. Ariba Koala. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, Kurtzman Comics, that's that's um, Kitchen Sink Joint. Dr. Atomic, Larry Todd. Yeah, you see uh, some crumb mixed in, Mr. Natural. So you've got like those uh, undergrounds and head shop comics are part of this. And and we're up to zap number nine. You know, we have, they put out maybe one issue a year, a couple issues a year. So we're up to zap number nine as far as Monkey's Retreat's uh, stock goes. Man, posters, t-shirts, you know, like you're, you're just trying to run this business. Fanzines with a gigantic representation. Yeah, dude. Yeah, it's really cool going through these kinds of lists and just seeing like what fits those retail outlets. You know, what are the books that are relevant? A lot of Star Wars represented, a lot of film kind of stuff, cult stuff. Yeah. And still a lot of underground comics. You know, they really seem to go from the head shop to these retail outlets. I bet you a lot of head shops made that pivot. You know, where it was like, we're either, you know, pot dealers or what, I don't, you know, supporters. What, yeah. But as that started to get pinched, I think some of those went, you know what? I like the comics, I guess. Monkeys Retreat comics do smell like patchouli. That is true. <laughs> um, a grouse at Close Encounters, so we get another movie review on a on a big sci-fi movie here. <laughs> yeah, by Denny O'Neill, and and like one of the uh, the other firsts for this issue is uh, uh, the word ennui is a word that I see in in comics journal very often, and and it's one that I looked up a lot. And and uh, Denny O'Neill makes sure to use the word ennui. Very critical of this movie. Yeah, yeah, but not comics, and 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 uh, we might you know and. and with the exception of a couple of things, uh, the the bulk of the comics top might might be done with this comic. Hey, you know what's funny? This Outer Limits, I'm not sure if this is the one, but there's an Outer Limits review later in this issue. Right. And I wonder if it's... Usually you, you want to run the ad next to the positive review, but how not cool, so much. How this cool is this? Yeah, I like this a lot. I will confess I've never read an Asterix no. comic. I've looked through a couple. I know it's huge, but I haven't read it. And to me, this is one of those things that's a great feature in Comics Journal showing up here because it's like, hey, let me educate you on a very popular comic in France. It applies to us right this minute. You don't know it. I don't know it. This huge drop in the science. The creators are dead at yes. this point. So it's not like there's more asterisks being done. Or if there is, it's not It's not the OG. It's really interesting, too. Like, the guy goes through great detail. The background of the story, the setting. Um, it's very French, the setting background, in a lot of ways, which does make me wonder what reading it would be like uh but talks about the creators like this is the profile if you wanted to cover a new work or introduce a new work to a, a, a new audience this is a really well done profile like they come at it from a lot of different angles uh both creative and story wise Re and 
where to start. Yeah, he gets into reading orders, the pros and cons of the, of the various uh, albums. The the idea of the album is mentioned. Uh, you know, we're going to get into some some European talk for sure. Yeah, in how this, to read asterisks. Love that. Yeah, in this in this volume, but it is it is interesting that there is just no conversation about Japanese comics at all. Yeah, in this, uh, it'd in be this very piece. curious to uh, chart. You know, continue to monitor that as it comes along because. There was some European coverage last issue too. Yeah. So good on the Comics Journal for bringing that in. And when do they start looking at uh, incorporating some Japanese comics in here as well? Because they're floating around at some of these bookstores in the cities, right? We hear it's about true. certain creators who are finding it in this time period and going into the early '80s. So I'm sure it'll find its way in here. But nice article. I, I feel like that's a piece that Groth, I assume, is looking at these issues as they come together and being like, "Yeah, we'll do more of this." You know, this, sure. is, this is a quality the, uh, comics conversation. The guy went above and beyond. Uh, he, like they, like in the introduction, they say that they did not expect such a tome to be delivered to uh, the TCJ offices. Don Rosa um, contributing a piece of artwork here that I think looks really nice, and that's your writer died. I think when this article was was being put together, right? And and Don Rosa will be a very early Fantagraphics uh, comic creator with uh, Don Rosa's comics and stories. It looks so beautiful, you know, like uh, all all the lines are there in the in the same way that like the great animators know how to do with the weight and all yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, great cartooning, and that's what they some of the details they get into talking about the virtue of that strip and its evolution. Like when they give reading orders, they talk about style. Yeah, the the way the style evolves and... because he's been doing it since like the fifties. Right. So it's been doing it for twenty years. Of course, there's going to be style changes. The guy went from pen to to brush, yada yada. Bud Plant, we yeah. mentioned him a minute ago as being a guy who's supplying a lot of material to the West Coast retail outlets. So you get to see one of his ads here. And noteworthy here, this is your first kingdom art from yes. Jack Katz. There's going to be an article later on in this six issues available at this point. Really goes to show you that like Bud Plant, Phil Sewing were really the big proponents of independent comics of that, that super early day. Like... Uh, there are the reports that, you know, Wendy, Richard Peeney, you know, they got th orders for, into the thousands from Bud Plant and from Phil Suling. And, yeah. and uh, you know, that really set, set them up. This is uh, fun to see, like, what is what is being popularly sold. So right. Bern Hogarth, somebody you could uh, track down if you're looking at some history of comic strips and some high points in comics art. There'll be an article about Bern Hogarth later. Not as flattering, that article. Uh, but nevertheless, like, you see, like, the who the players are. And I don't know if it's just um, serendipitous that you get ads for some of the features or if those two things are more closely related. Right. And Camelot, a, uh, a dealer, possibly a distributor out of the Texas area. I feel like all of these retailers are sort of distributors. Sure. You know, I'm sure they're offering mail order if you want to come at it. Sure. All right. So here's our big centerpiece interview with Gil Kane. And what a doozy this thing is. Absolutely, man. He would be working on Starhawks around this point. That's like a lot of the art that we're seeing here. And it's noteworthy for me. He starts working at the age of 15 in 1941. I don't think I realized he was in the game that early on. But they list like the publishers that he worked with. MLJ, Street and Smith, Prize, Marvel Quality, Holy Holyoke, Aviation Press, National DC, Hillman, Eastern, Color, Fawcett, King, Dell, Tower, Fox, Avon. All of them. Imagine the golden age of comics where you have this many viable professional publishers right. working. Um, he had done, his name is Savage at this point. Uh, I think pretty recently that was published. Well, 
early 70s because Black, okay. Blackmark comes second. Yeah, and that's 1971 Blackmark. We looked at His Name is Savage. I don't think we've looked at Blackmark yet, but I would point everybody at the His Name is Savage video. I think that's a really cool comic. And if you haven't seen it, pretty interesting to kind of see a guy who's pushing against the boundaries of comics at this point. And totally. they, will, they will cover that as we uh, head through here. He is... Uh, it's he's a sad read for me a lot because he is a very erudite smart fella i i i don't think he ever went to any college he's an autodidact and uh there's pros and cons to that you learn a whole lot about the things you want to learn about but maybe it's good to have uh some more structure in your education and uh so he's a smart fella but he has such limitations and he's smart enough to know that he's limited and he can't push through the glass ceiling for himself you know he's got his hat that he draws he's got his suit that he draws yeah he's very self-critical throughout this well times in this interview and one of them is that he thinks he just draws too fast which is a component of doing this since you're 15 in an industry where you got to draw faster you starve that's what that's what chaykin said like chaykin said that he did everything chaykin did everything he could to show gilkane how to use reference and not make it look static and stuff but like gil king just could not could not uh resist like doing what he did you know i wanted to uh point this out they talk about the very out of the gate why how did savage fail and uh kane says the magazine failed because only 10 percent of all the magazines that were printed reached the distributor so there's a lot of corruption and distribution. We're going to hear about how DC has the best distribution method. You know, like that was connected to DC from the very beginning. Because they because they ran it. Yes, exactly. But distribution sunk a lot of people. Like yeah. when we talked to Jim Steranko about how Super Graphics made it while Wally Wood and Gil Kane did not, that was one of the things. Yeah, like totally. You just couldn't navigate that distribution and you can't overcome that. He said if we had sold 100% of the books that made it to the distributor, we still would have gone out of business. Like totally. it, you, you, you lost before the book even hit the stands. And there's a there's a piece that doesn't get addressed when Gary asks him explicitly, uh, well, what happened to those other books? Gilkane was about to like say something, and then he just went off in a different track. So it's a, that's an unfortunate thing. Like like uh, I would like to have known where those things have gone. And uh, Gary Groth doing this interview, he is like the executor to Gilkane's estate now or or you yes. know what, whatever you call that like power of attorney whatever that is yeah uh, he, he he talks about that openly when I, in our shoot interview with yeah. gary groth so no, no secrets there yeah no 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 go yeah, check it out if you're interested so all the uh you know the savage stuff that that fanta did like the the fresh Gilkane stuff that you see you know like gary is able to make that happen and it's based on a friendship so like that's that's an interesting piece of this interview is like where where are they at in their correspondence because I, I i i detect such a uh um respect yes for one another and i think gary knows kane enough to know how to get him talking yeah i mean this is a great interview uh, i hate to linger too much on the first two pages but the next question after the savage distribution thing is he says that martin goodman who had been marvel's publisher sells marvel and then starts up another publishing company atlas which we know you know they they published all know, great talent four or five issues of a bunch of different series you've probably seen them color superhero comics and barbarian stuff he says that same deal like they could not succeed because of distribution and says that he understands that martin lost a million and a half dollars but it's just too difficult if you don't have 
the magazine distribution on your side, you cannot succeed. Yeah, and it's so noteworthy to mention Martin Goodman because it goes to show you, like, he, he made it work with this one company, but he couldn't, like, uh, catch lightning in the bottle two times. Always such a provocative sequence from Savage. Man, yeah. go, make sure you check that video out that we did. Absolutely. And now we get into, like, DC, who has the best distribution, but that's not enough. They're still not the largest selling company because their comics aren't any good. Right, yeah, and he, he's very, very critical uh, about that stuff. No consequence in those things. They're the same, uh, you know, they're, they're the same comic uh, every, every time you read it. Um, at a certain point, he's going to talk about... He does editorial point of view here and compares Marvel and DC and how, like, the editorial point of view is important for a company like this that's just doing assembly line, and that DC's is just lousy. Right. Like, like uses the word lousy. Um, pretty telling. I mean, that's a story that started in the last Comics Journal with Jenna Khan talking about getting some new editors in there, some new blood. Um, but Gil Kane just piles on and on about how these companies are set up that they can copy something successful, but they're not going to innovate something new. Right. And, and you get the sense that both parties are frustrated about comics. They love the medium. They see the possibilities of it doing other things and going elsewhere. But... It's not going to happen at those big publishers. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, Groth asks him about like the stuff Janet Kahn's doing, like royalties on reprints, returning art, um, improving relations between management and creative. And Kane says that's all important, but it's not going to adjust a failing company to a successful company, like hiring labor force away from Marvel. Instead of hiring carpenters, they have to hire architects. Right. It's jobbers, man. Carpenter is literally the word yeah. that Arne Anderson uses for jobber. Right. You know, like, like literally that's what he's saying here is like, you can have the people that are just kind of putting the round pegs in the round holes, or you can have this creative class. And if you don't have the creative class, you're not going to turn that around. Right. It's amazing to hear a guy who's working for DC probably at times sure. saying this stuff. Talks about popular taste. I enjoyed these ideas. Uh, kind of goes through and talks about how like, Comics are basically for kids, and they shouldn't be limited to that. You yeah. know, if you compare it to something like film or literature or any of this stuff, you know, there are magazines for adults, perverts, kids, anything. But comics aren't like that at this at this time period, and he thinks that's a real failing on the part of comics. You know, they could be done intelligently. Can't argue and with they, that. And, and, and he tried, man. The guy tried. But, but he knows his... It's that old conversation that we have, man, about these people who push the medium a little bit, but they don't have the facility. They don't have the vocabulary, the language to be able to do that. So he sees it. He knows it on a conceptual and intellectual basis, but he has superhero chops. He has pulp chops and uh, there's nothing he could do about that. So, you know, he gets the door open a little bit, pushes it a little bit, and then it's up to say, you know, the Frank Millers and the Walt Simonsons who come next to open it up a little bit further and push things a little bit further. It's an evolution and, and it requires a mutation. This is really great too. He asked, Groth asks Kane about the fan press. And I find that to be really interesting whenever you consider, like you mentioned Frank Miller coming up, right? He came out of fan press. Yeah. You know, he was doing that stuff. And, and Kane mentions how like it is uh the, they, they manifest in, in gigantic creativity. He kind of says, like, this is the most creative comics being done at this point, which is so interesting when you think of how much talent comes out of that fan press. Right. And the changes that do end up happening in comics, a lot of it is from those people. 
So pretty interesting and astute on Gil Kane's part. I agree with so much of what he says here. It's so interesting to see him making these kinds of, I don't know, observations, being conscious of what all's going on in sort of the business industry side of this, uh, of, of comics at this time. Um, talks about fan conventions a little bit and how, you know, that's a different deal. That's, that's fandom, you know, and, and not necessarily in making stuff, but just in like fans and, you know, a bunch of 11, 12 year olds. It's not really the thing that's shaping the industry, right. so to speak. Does say that he thinks they're aging up. It gets exciting to me when uh, we start to get into like the Mobius conversation, probably in the new directions uh, section section of this conversation. But what what they talk about is uh, that he's like the most exciting new guy. Ask Gary, you ever see uh, Blueberry? Gary has seen Blueberry, so he and and they make the distinction like John Giroux is Blueberry, but at night you know he moonlights and does this Mobius stuff that's wild. And uh, Gary, it's so cool because like Gary's expressing that like. It's sad that he can't read that stuff, which, you know, inevitably gets its English printings, you know, in English translations. But they both agree that, like, it's probably a good thing because uh, it probably reads as trash. And and uh, Kane mentions, like, the the fault of comics really is in the writing. And that's something that 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 I've said for a long, long time. And uh, certainly of these old eras, the art there was like there is a like you could look at co a, a piece of artwork and say that that is professionally viable you know like the eyes are where they should be and everything looks like it's in the picture plane correctly yada yada uh but the writing part is often the part that's lacking the most you know like i just just look at those uh and it, and they explicitly mentioned those green arrow you know green lantern green arrow comics and how it's Neil Adams who's, who's carrying the, the whole show and you read it and it's utter garbage. Like like that was uh, what Marty Pasco was talking about in the previous issue. And it got me thinking like, I actually never read, uh, you know, I haven't read these interviews before. And I'm on the record of, uh, when we look through all those issues as, as saying that. And that's me forming my own opinion because I, I've never seen it. And whenever those comics were mentioned in like Wizards and things, they talked about how how uh groundbreaking they were and said all this positive stuff so like when i was a kid and i got hold of like reprints of those things i'm like these are the comics like right. it's just like an average fucking dc comic that has a little bit of what's going on now in terms of the writing and the art looks good so it's like all out of context yeah yeah you know you'll never hear me complain about the art but that writing is just over the top kid <clears throat> shit they hit it really hard again and again about the the lack of good writing uh, here's a quote from Kane. If a writer were the equal of Giraud, he'd unquestionably be successful as a writer on his own. What the hell would he want to come into comics for? Yeah. That's really interesting. But he says, you know, it's it's only the artist who might be able to rise to the level of his own art as a writer and make the perfect symbiosis like Harvey Kurtzman. Kurtzman comes up several times yeah. in glowing praise, even in detail talking about some of his war comics and just the humanity that's in them. Right. How sometimes there's not even conflict or fighting. Um, it's, it's really interesting that he does have examples of like, this is a good, this is a good version. EC, this is something that pushed the envelope in a positive way. Yeah. And he holds EC in very high regard. So Kurtzman comes up specifically a lot, but then he talks about how, you know, those guys at EC, like they did the best work of their career at EC. Yeah. And, uh, because of the circumstance and the environment that was created. 
he um uses jazz as an analogy and how important it is to have like language form around an art form in order for that art form to kind of develop it allows people to discuss it and that's important for moving it forward and says at this point there just isn't critical dialogue around comics and that would be valuable um a lot of stuff laid out in this interview that really points towards the future of the comics journal yeah uh, talking about Starhawks, which is a, a uh, strip that he's doing at this time with Ron Golar, Golay. Yeah. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but I know he's written some histories that sure. I have of comics. So, Absolutely. So uh, definitely a comics guy there. And talks about the evolution of Starhawks, and that, that stuff's pretty fun, but it's still a tight deadline. It's still something he struggles with deadline-wise, that this stuff has to be turned around, and he's building a whole world. So it is really kind of a fast, uh, you know, not a lot of time to develop this stuff. Everybody who talks about uh, Gil Kane talks about him being in a tremendous debt. He's trying to live the high life. I think he lived in that Connecticut mm-hmm. town where like the Stan Drakes and Ernie Bushmillers and all those guys lived. And those these are millionaires, you know, people who have licensed comics that licensed properties that have cartoons and plushies and all that stuff. And Gil Kane is just a comic book guy, basically. Like the 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 strip has, you know, the newspaper strip has all the gravitas. Uh, but he's just a comic book guy trying to like keep up with the Joneses, and he's also hiring people to help. So like that's money, and you know, Chaykin talks about him just being tremendously behind the eight ball. Uh, probably doesn't doubt that Gil Kane died in tremendous debt. Uh, I think the reason why I talked about this with Gary at CXE, I asked him, why'd you guys go to LA? And he's like, well, my friend Gil Kane went out there, got animation work and, and like, he went out to like kind of help, uh, just him out in, in, in some form or fashion. But, uh, yeah, just, just always behind the eight ball, always trying to make another dollar Maybe a couple a failed marriage or two that that siphons some of that loot out of his pocket. Man, he's so critical of the of the way comics work. This is a great quote. What happened with DC is that they ran out of successful things to duplicate. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have anything to imitate. That's hilarious. Yeah, he's uh man. At this point, it feels like he may be working outside of comics and just letting it rip. And. I wonder, wonder if he regrets some of that stuff whenever he gets back to it. Because the Starhawks doesn't last. The Black Mark doesn't, doesn't hit. Uh, Kane, we are, or uh, Savage, we already talked about. So, you know, at some point, like, whenever I'm reading comics, he's doing Marvel DC stuff again. Totally. Has reference for Brolin Hogarth, and that tracks with what uh, Chaykin talks about. Starting to do that flayed figure and splayed anatomy and then that like uh play-doh kind of musculature and stuff um barry windsor smith come barry smith at this point and uh, bernie wrightson both come up and it's kind of the idea that like they'll spend more time on one image than like you might put out and draw an entire comic they might spend a week on an image right and you know that might be the time it takes to draw a comic at this point yes and and uh, uh, another part of that conversation really is how these guys like comics can't afford them and they're doing outside stuff and Barry Smith and, and Wrightson they're coming into comics for like a you know year two three but then they're going off doing like other things 
Yeah, it recognizes that that is pushing reproduction as well, which is something that a lot of people that are looking for higher quality comics are looking towards as a solution to those higher quality comics. Right. Um, interesting where everybody's head is as far as that goes. Um, talk about Kirby comes up a little bit. It's just interesting to get a survey from somebody who doesn't seem to be afraid to talk. And that's what you're getting out of this interview. It's pretty good for, uh, you know, a lot of familiar names. So if you think like we're going to look at 70s comics history and maybe be lost, not in this interview. No. A lot of the big names are covered here. This is where he talks about EC Comics and how those guys, they kind of weren't known, at least not the way they would become known before EC. And EC was just the perfect environment to like take these guys' talents and exploit them. Yeah. And, and I don't mean that in the cheap way, but in the sense that like, some of EC's success was based on, hey, everybody, look at these great artists we have. We're sure. better than everybody else. And uh, that was one of the things that EC really built their reputation on, and it pushed those guys. It meant that they were kind of aware of that, and they were trying to do better than each other, you know, which is, uh, we've talked about competitive environment. Iron sharpens iron, baby. Exactly. Compares Marvel and DC's administrative sides and how Marvel's kind of a mess, which we mentioned earlier with late books and, and you know, the train's not running on time, and DC's much better at it, but what's it get them? <laughs> uh mentions neil adams is combining like jack kirby and stan drake you know style wise which to is, make a neil adams which is exactly fantastic yeah i've always said that man not not exactly stan drake but just that that daily strip artograph projector fucking comics and what kane is saying there is that we need creators to come in with influences outside of comics. Yeah. Not just fanboys, but look at look at some different styles to bring in. And, and not very many people do it. And he's really pointing out his deficiencies. Like like he because he knows that that's his shortcoming. You know, that that he comes from pulp and he we need artists to, you know, be de further developed. Yeah, somewhat critical of Frazetta a couple of times. Sure. Because because it's the same deal. Like uh, you know, he's pulling from how foster he's pulling from raymond so he's a mix of those guys and when you look at one of his paintings it's not the you know this is da vinci he's like it's 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 cartooning we've said it on our videos like looking at the frazetta paintings and stuff like like the um, the amount of uh, cartooning that's done in there the film conversation here is interesting because he's critical of american films because they are not real people Right. And says that the European stuff, much more real people. But at this point, because of the success of movies like Jaws, what you get are Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and actors that look pretty but don't look like real people. And kind of interesting to see that take. I feel like that's a conversation people continue with. Groth offers One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as an example that goes, you know, maybe against that and is more real people. And Kane's like, yeah, but it took them years to get that picture done. You know, really, it's the exception that proves the rule. Right. Yeah, I sort of dashed off the rest of this stuff because, like, I care more about comics than, you know, his thoughts on, like, what the great plays are. And a lot of the stuff that uh, Groth is mentioning, Gil Kane is, is shooting down. And that's also tracks with, like, Howard Chaykin conversation where he would get caught in these conversations with Gil Kane when Kane would be like, hey, kid, so what, what are you reading these days? Right. And then, uh, Gil Kane, I mean, uh, Chaykin would, like, accidentally mention something that right. he, like, really holds in high esteem. And then Gil Kane will just, like, tear it to shit. 
there i mean we all know people like that yeah. you know i've had friends like that and at some point it's like i just shut down why would i say anything i like in front of you <laughs> right you know um he does defend orson wells kane does whenever uh groth kind of says that citizen kane is you know good and then the rest is less distinguished and, and, that's and they what... go through film by film kane being like this is good this is good so if and i love that i'm an orson wells fan it's just the flip though because right. if, if if groth would have said the opposite yes then gil kane would have said Citizen Kane was was the only good comic. How about this ad? Movie? Collector Showcase, original art auction catalogs. Amazing. These are guys recreating in paintings their famous Golden Age covers. And Alex Schomburg starting it off, but I wonder what these things look like. Like the first catalog, two bucks. Are they full color reproductions? Oh, you talk about the catalogs. The catalogs, yeah, because it'd be amazing to see these guys cc beck craig fleisel you know like there are these mike sikowski guys bill ward guys we know it'd be really cool to see what they were doing and i've seen the uh schaumburgs like carl barks ends up with a second half of his career doing paintings of like his duck artwork that you know it's going to be interesting because that's going to start to happen yeah and some trouble comes out of that of course but i feel like this was a thing that i don't know if it's a thing now but this was a thing of like these artists recreating their works and uh, kind of cool. There's a there's a modern day version. I've 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 seen I've seen Art Adams revisit his you know mm-hmm. X Men classic X Men one cover a lot and stuff. I love that they're doing it in paint though. It, totally it adds a different layer. Uh, would like to see him just because that seems like a novelty to me. So Hogarth and Crimmers, uh, Crimmers, a Harvard Journal of Pictorial Fiction. We already see the disdain for comics showing up, like with the graphic novel with all these different words for comics. Here it is in 1977. We're already doing pictorial fiction, right? Yes, yes, yes. And Come it's, on. And it's if so, you don't want to write about <laughs> comics, don't then don't do it. So, so uh, you know, like we often will laugh and joke about what I call wackademics, and this is a great example. It is. And and it persists to this day. Where like we've been at conventions, we were on panels. I remember we were on panels with Seth. And Seth was being very, very self-effacing in that very Seth way, talking about Wimbledon Green and those like sketchbook comics. Oh, I just dashed that out. I was in my sketchbook. I wasn't thinking anything uh, of it. And we know like a professor who runs courses with new, you know, young impressionable minds, parroting what Seth said from that piece to the students. But you and I know that there is so much labor done on those comics. This is a per- this is a civilian who's from the outside, just taking everything as gospel and, and espousing that to the students. That's what I mean by academic. It's like not forming the own your own opinion and not having enough stake in the game to understand when a guy's being a character and being self-effacing as he is. Right. All you got to do is read two Seth interviews and then and then you know what his character is and how he's gonna he's from that generation where they diss themselves. So this is a Harvard publication. Uh, extolling the virtues of Bern Bern Hogarth, and this is the 1977 version of cartoonist kayfabe saying, you fucking wackademics are corny as hell, and I will give you a point-by-point basis, because if you're saying that Bern Hogarth is great pictorial fiction, and you're going to hang your hat on the anatomy? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, look, at this point he says, uh, 20 pages of gibberish, he calls the, that, that anatomy bit, it's it's kind of funny to see it it's um it's interesting to see like this is another in a weird way another version of the comics journal the early attempts to like let's try to talk about this stuff in in a somewhat critical language that hasn't developed yet and this guy's like you're just 
all of these points are off. Ignorant. Like it's a terrible example of what, what you're trying to say. This is not the artist or the examples that, that prove your point. Completely ignorant. Talking about how Kirby has a better understanding of the human body than Bernard Hogarth does, even though he like abstracts it. And, you know, like the, the, um, the Harvard kids are like dissing Kirby, but Kirby is, had just has more sound idea of like how, how things work. The, the Bernard Hogarth clones, like, like with Dynamic Anatomy and those other books that uh, Hogarth did, kind of wrecked a generation of artists. Name checks Gil Kane as being the only person to come from the Bern Hogarth school that was able to kind of make it work. Yeah. And if you, we'll, we'll look at those Bern Hogarth books at some point, man. If those are your Bible for figure drawing, you're 100% fucked. Because <laughs> there are like so many made up muscles and shit, and the foreshortening is off. That's talked about yeah, here? Yeah, it is. It's like you say, it's basically a point by point going through this journal and just really taking this guy to task. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where when you see something like that, you can't not respond with venom, you know, because I, I've, I've been there a million times. This is filler, I think. <laughs> Growing <laughs> totally. up weird. I don't know Mel Gilden. So and, I, so and, I and looked he's it an accomplished up. author. Maybe this makes sense. But this is like his recollection of being a fan of science fiction and also the value of reading literature outside of that genre. Yeah, I, uh, I I had to put his name in into the Google machine, man, because in the first like paragraphs, he's like, I'm not as famous as I want to be, which to me is the Nor wackiest. Is rich. Yeah, is the wackiest thing to like to aspire to fame is trash to me. Uh, nor as rich. So I'm like, let me see if this guy is anything or if he's just that kind of fanboy that Does like. Does he have anything? I didn't look him up. Lots and uh, a big body of work. Are novelizations of scripts from Beverly Hills 90210. You gotta be kidding me. Like maybe 10 of them. Wow. Books. I can't even believe there's a market for that. <laughs> that's, that's it was in the 90s. Astounding. It was in the 90s. Yeah, I but, guess. but he does what's called a speculative fiction at this point. So uh, he has his own novels. Uh, the latest one coming out in about 2018, I believe. So he has a career. Interesting. But uh, I, I, and, and I would bet you. If he revisited this article, he would be embarrassed. It's an embarrassing article. Yeah. Like I think, I think Gary Groth, if he were being honest, would probably be like, "Yeah, not not the best piece in yeah. this issue." Yeah, I, th I think I think he's a kid getting his first uh, couple years. You know, his first hundred ten ten thousand hours experience. Whatever. It's so funny because in some ways, like I'm I'm interested in that, like the journeyman writer, like a guy who makes a career writing without necessarily having that hit. Yeah. Um, but at this stage, like it's just it sounds like somebody you, you bump into at a comic convention right. who has these. Big dreams right. and plans, but he's a little bit more BS than uh, totally. resume at that point. He's, he's written for television and stuff like uh, Masters of the Universe, like 80s cartoons and things. There was this, just real quick, man. There's this one story like uh, uh, at, at, at the Kubert School. There's this dude who um, we would I would always give him a chance again. He would always annoy the fuck out of me. But like the next time I would see him, I would always give him a chance and the benefit of the doubt and try to treat him cool and shit. But he would always say something to the levels of douchey that I've never seen in my entire life. And, and the most famous one, because a lot of people were there in that room, and there might be comments, don't, don't mention his name, don't be, be nice about it. But uh, the dude was said, basically said something about, uh, we, the conversation that the kids were having were something like, oh, there's never been that great of a Spider-Man story. And he's like, oh no, that's not true, there totally was. It, it, and uh, and uh, they're like, yeah, well, what is it? He's like. Well, I wrote it, he said, man. He was being so serious. <laughs> the kid did not last the year. Oh, man. The kid did tough. not last the year. 
All right, so The Kingdom and the Power of Jack Katz. Yes. This is Jack Katz' first kingdom being reviewed. There's about six issues out. This was being published by Comics and Comics, which was a store that Bud Plant, Bob Beerbaum, um, there's a third guy around that, that was part of that. And I can't remember who the third guy is. Bill Sherman, by the way, writes intros to latter issues of this yeah. series. But this is an amazing early... It's not self-published, but it's close to self-published attempt at a graphic novel and an epic one. From the beginning, Jack Katz basically lays out plans to do 24 of these uh, semi-annual issues that are magazine size, 32 pages, dense, black and white. You see a little sample of the art here. It's one of those fascinating things that you would see, um, you know, maybe in the early days of the direct market, I would see them now and then and be kind of like, what is that? Eventually I had to track them down because they're such fascinating objects, but it's it's an amazing, amazing book in so many ways. When the direct market ads started to show up, it would be ElfQuest, Cerebus, and First Kingdom would be the three books that That's I would it. see in a very common early distributor ad. So, and, and let's and let's say that he he made good on his promise. Yes, like, he did. Like, like the, he completed it. Twelve Clockwork. years. Twelve years was his plan from the get-go, and that's when it finished. So, an amazing accomplishment to the point that we're gonna we're gonna do a video about this. Yeah. So, tune into uh, possibly tomorrow's video. <laughs> yeah. But sure. we're gonna cover this after uh, after we do this issue because I think this is a really noteworthy comic, and it's cool that it's covered here. It's kind of a good lead-in for us. And might I say, this article sells me on it because all of the trepidation that this Bill Sherman guy had when he opens up his his first kingdoms, I have just a few issues. Uh, all of his trepidations are my trepidations of just like, it looks, it's so uh, dense mm -hmm. to look at and it's fun to look at. It's overwhelming. The typography is, uh, is a turnoff. Uh, it's not really go like, He's got a plan and all that stuff, but it's stilted dialogue. It's stilted captioning. Certainly pulling from the the Hal Foster, Hal Foster's mo a huge mo motif influence. for sure. Uh, but this guy says, like I, you know, I have all these reservations, but stick with it because it's really like you're gonna get sucked in. So I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm gonna load this up on uh, on the iPad and fucking give, give it give it a good shot. Yeah, so Bud Plant, one of the big distributors, and also basically the publisher. Yeah. Uh, throughout the run of the series, too, as, as comics and comics break away from First Kingdom and or break away from Bud Plant, Bud Plant continues to publish this book through, I think, its entire run, I believe. So an amazing early direct market, self-published, or at least creator-owned book, and um, really pushing the boundaries of what comics are. You think about that Gil Kane interview and then a book like First Kingdom shows up, right. and it's so ambitious, and it's so different than anything else that you're seeing in American comics, and maybe global comics. Uh, kudos to him. So we'll have a bigger video on this coming very soon, possibly tomorrow. And again, another, this is a full-page splash, which in some ways offsets that density you talk about, Ed. But boy, he's not cutting corners when it comes to the amount of ink that he's putting down on each page. Not at all, man. And clearly a fetishist of the figure. Definitely. You know, like, uh, I, I, was, I was looking at this image and I was like, when we do the video on First Kingdom, do we, do we put it in the Outlaw Comic uh, playlist? It, it, it would fit pretty comfortably there. This is a um, sci-fi fantasy story. And, right. and it tells basically uh, humanity's rise from from a post-holocaust kind of collapse into like a sci-fi future uh the word epic you know it's probably misused a lot not when it comes to first kingdom so 
we'll get a little bit further down that rabbit hole. They mention graphic novel, and there are collections that are going to be coming. You know, the first six-issue collection is coming, and that's, you know, six times 32. That's the page count. Yep. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big, fat, dense read. I think that Titan Books might have been one of the recent uh, collectors, and there's a six-volume complete yeah, uh, First Kingdom. Yeah, he, he mentions that, you know, um, the book publication of the first six volumes scheduled for spring 1978. That's amazing, again, when you think about what this is. It's the very front edge of that idea of making graphic novels, making much more mature work for a more mature audience, and even a book collection. That's not your dime or 20 cents that the kids skip and lunch and buying at the newsstand. That's going to be a price point that requires an adult to pull out their wallet. Yeah, yeah, it's, po it's pocket books, which is, which is a real, you know, that's a real publisher, man. Marvel has uh, Spider-Man and the Hulk have now been on <laughs> on television, and Kim Thompson's going to fill us in on it. Yes. Pretty critical of the uh, Spider-Man show or, or movie. I guess it's a two hours or 90-minute feature. Um, not as successful as the Hulk piece, uh, comparing these two. But I think the bigger story is just Marvel now making headway into multimedia into hollywood into a broader audience and you know i think that shows like when i did my hulk grand design i tracked all the sales for the history of the hulk first 30 years yeah you see it spike around here the late 70s once the tv show comes they sell more hulks you know we reviewed the stanley documentary and then we we had a little piece of our conversation talking about stanley going to hollywood what we failed to say in that conversation was how fucked up the deals were mm -hmm. that Stanley made uh, with the with these characters, and and Jim Shooter goes into it. It's like it's like fifty dollar deals and things like that got these licenses tied up f for a very very long time. I don't and know the history of that Spider Man license, but I mean it's still a weird thing with Sony owning rights to that or whatever. And I wonder if that goes all the way back to this deal. Totally, and uh, they're expecting that Superman movie to be dope. And I think Time Warner already has DC, or 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 just Warner at mm -hmm. this point has DC. So there's that corporate synergy, and Marvel does not have that. But at the end, there's talks of maybe Marvel buying a um, animation studio. That's a ways off. They do do that because that's the that's the cartoons that you would get with the Spider-Man that like comes down at the end of cartoons in like you know, mm -hmm. 1980 or whatever. Uh, they're talking about a Human Torch show that's uh, on the horizon, which seems impossible. Totally, like, especially do, like, then, the next thing. Like that's tempting fate. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's tempting fate too much. Uh, the the Captain America show, which does happen, mm -hmm. and it's so interesting these Spider-Man things because they say the first one's a two-hour movie. So with so with commercials, is that a three-hour block of time? Because they talk about these 90-minute episodes. And he says, this is TV, so, so like, is that two hours? So, like, the 90-minute ones are two hours, and then the two-hour thing is a three-hour block of television? That's a good question. I, I, I don't know about that. It, and it's weird. I, I guess I didn't realize that those things were so, so old, because uh, just growing up in the 80s, they would dust those programs off. Now, now, now Hulk was in syndication. Like, yeah. like you could watch it almost, almost any time. But on special occasions... They would bust out the, the Spider-Man, and it would be like maybe on Easter or uh, Memorial Day or something. They, they would bust out the, the Spider-Mans, and, and, and I was kind of, kind of a fan of that, because like the only other place you would see Spider-Man would be like the Macy's Day Parade. You know, got to get up early and watch dudes yeah, right. dress up like uh, He-Man and shit and, and, and do that. But, but um, the latest time 
that I can remember that those things would be on TV uh, was uh, Sci-Fi Channel used to do the Mighty Marvel Marathon, and I would run a tape. Like, I would run a series of tapes. Like, like three tapes would cover the whole thing if you do it on EP mode or whatever. And it would be... Uh, there's a Doctor Strange movie. It would be the Spider-Mans. It would be the Hulks. And then... Um, that Captain America show. Like, did you ever see that thing? I never saw Captain America. I've never seen the Spider-Man, and I'm kind of curious about it, even though Thompson just lambasts it in every way possible. Sure. Um, but the Hulk stuff was kind of interesting because you have, like, it starts as a Hulk movie. Right. You get the Hulk series, and then when I was a kid, it was Hulk movies again. Like, yeah, with uh, Daredevil. There was one with Daredevil, one with Thor, yeah. and I would record those. Yeah, and totally. probably late 80s. Like 90? Maybe, I would, maybe I remember, 1990. Yeah, I remember being in Baltimore recording those. But he does praise Bill Bixby as really a good cast choice. You know, he's able to kind of like emote and, and get the empathy of the audience so that works for him and it's interesting to hear him talk about Ferrigno and comparing him to like Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney in terms of like thinking of this as a monster character right and and you know says he doesn't measure up but at the same time I think it's a really interesting way to think about the Lou Ferrigno Hulk in that context because I think it's universal that has that, that has this deal so you can kind of Add right. him to the Universal Monsters, at least at this point, you know, not knowing exactly how this is all going to work out. But kind of interesting to see the amount of movie coverage in these early comics journals, because we got a bunch last issue, too. Yeah, you know, like the Nostalgia Press, or like whatever the Nostalgia thing was before, you know, the the uh, the TG Fantagraphics took it over. They they still have that content in here, because still, you know, there's not that much happening in comics. What, what I could say, like if I was to go back in time and like, you know, be a little angel on gary and kim shoulder i would just say like how about you increase the font size yes and just have it just <laughs> be like it'll fill the 64 <laughs> pages and it would just be the comic stuff because it's very dense with the comic shit and it like if, if if that's all that it was i would be totally satisfied with that but we do have this filler one piece of non-filler for me bizarre thrills number one out of tallahassee florida you see bill black's name under the uh, illustrated these great good girl artists is number one you see staten and black there in the signature totally this is americomics this is the beginning of americomics and bill black and uh, I is think it the he, beginning you know what that's a good point because he was doing paragon press and i think that preceded this but you see like all girl outlaws it's amazing to me, Americomics. I'm looking forward to the documentary, the Bill Black yeah. documentary that you mentioned, Ed. Um, not to be confused with Bill Blackbeard, right. <laughs> another comics saint, right. but a guy who published comics for, I don't know, 40 years? I mean, going back into at least the early 70s. This is late 70s, so started before this. Still publishing? I don't know if he's still alive, to be honest, but AC Comics is still active. Exactly, exactly. So the legacy lives on, and like any of these companies that have been around for decades, they impressed me because they figured out something and this might be a mailing list yeah you know comes out a sort of a fandom and underground um but whatever it is man however you get there it's impressive to me decades as a comics publisher noteworthy names though man mark hempel steve vance is an important person in at bongo comics uh, when, when the time comes tom lyle Tom Lyle does does work. I think he did the Robin miniseries in the uh, early 90s from DC, which was a big seller for them. Totally. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And further on, like Eric Larson does work for them down the road. Sure. So there's a generation as you get into the 80s of guys that would go on to have mainstream success that, that uh, at least did some work there at AC Comics. I don't know if that's where they got their break or not. This is kind of fascinating that Gary Groth is writing this. This is a review of an animated movie, Allegro Non Tropo, by Bruno Bozzetto. I don't know any of this, 
and um that's gary showing off it is and he compares it to like disney's fantasia and again i don't have much to say because i've never seen this but kind of a deep dive if you're looking at visual art yeah and i and i have all the respect in the world for uncle gary and stuff but but i, I want to see what he has to say about comic stuff yeah yeah it's a, it's kind of a strange placement for a review but it's kind of where we're at. You and, know, and, I think a lot of the stuff that we know now and, in terms of like where animation goes yeah. at this point, who knows? Maybe it might have veered a different direction and become, you know, a totally different art form. He's a giant film buff. And, and uh, the language of the journal is modeled off of like the great critics that you hear Tarantino talk about, like Pauline Kael and sure. stuff like that. So he's a super rounded dude. He has a lot of interest. I think that speaks to his frustration on comics because... He knows the evolution of film and how quickly it got to to, uh, to a good place. And probably at 77, like, like we might be getting into real fun territory with, like, you know, you got Scorsese, Cassavetes, like, all these cool people in the game. There's probably new movies that are worth watching all the time, so. Review of The Hobbit, made for TV animation. Yeah. Mostly positive. Bakshi stuff, man. Mike Plug gets his mention. Yeah. And, and a lot of it is just, like, guys, can you believe, like, like the Hobbit, like the super esoteric, you know, million page fucking book is uh, getting to show up on TV when there's four channels. Yeah. Three channels, probably. Three million dollar budget. It's a pretty big project. Yeah. And and, and Bakshi, like, man, there, there's a great little documentary on him uh, that you can find online and just talks about, like, pull, pull out all the stops to try to get that to work, man. You know, hiring actual actors and stuff to, to rotoscope. This is the Outer Limits zine review. I don't know if this is actually that ad that I pointed out in the right. beginning of this issue or not. Um, this this article pisses me off because the first two two columns of text are qualifying like the problem with this kind of thing. There are other disadvantages. He's basically laying out how bad, how zines do stuff wrong for, I don't know, man, 750 words of this article. And it's like, tell me about the thing you're reviewing. <laughs> I don't need this kind of qualification for it. The thing he's reviewing, this this Outer Limits zine, he gives glowing review toward too. But I just don't need the 750-word lead-in of like how <laughs> most fanzines are bad. So I'm going to tell you something, Jimmy. The stuff that isn't about comics, read it if you want to, but it's nothing that we have to hang Fair on enough. too much. I will point this out. This is a Judy Hunt illustration. Gorgeous. Judith Hunt, I believe, was married to Chuck Dixon at one point and yeah. did a book called Evangeline oh, yeah. for Eclipse or First, maybe? Uh, maybe both, the way the comics are. It was Kamiko. Kamiko and then First Comics. I picked up a couple of those, and I was really impressed with her She's art. Amazing. And I'm like, what else has she done? Well, she did an illustration here, yeah. and it is very, very nice. Yeah, she got she got out of the game. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that she was in it too much. I don't know too many other comics that she did, that's but a I really like this. Piece, I think, oh, huh? yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Do a shade feathering. I, I thought the whole thing, great figure work. She's coming from the really Frazetta nice. school. Very sure. Johnny Comet type. Of so it. I always enjoy that stuff where you see like some artist that you 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 like but don't know much about, and then like, oh, check it out. We're there's gonna a, we're gonna a nice get a lot of that spot illustration here. We're gonna get a lot of that throughout looking at the journal. Brief Doonesbury review of the I guess this showed after the Hobbit, a little uh, adaptation, an animated adaptation to Doonesbury. Kind of neat to see that. I had no idea that existed. Me neither, man. And he makes it sound pretty good. Me neither. Uh, the the classified ad stuff is is funny because it's like it's just like slim pickings, man. Like people looking for photo stills of of Star Wars, like behind the scenes stuff. One piece worth noting is this very last zine, I believe. I'm so sorry. I'm uh, like I'm looking for the Clifford Meth one. 
and, and Clifford Meth, I think it might be the last thing. I actually would like this last one. I don't know if that's Clifford Meth, but uh, Mast had a journal for teaching history with old newspapers. I kind of love the old newspaper stuff if somebody else is willing to assemble it for me. Right. Oh, there it is, the first one. Okay. A zine that says something. Critical articles by the best in fandom, the fan guide, 75 cents from Clifford Meth. So, so uh, he's been, like, I've been connected with that dude since like the MySpace days, and, oh, okay. I, and, I, and I never knew much about him. But uh, when Gene Colan was like worse for wear, like he set up the fundraiser campaigns and and the books that came from that, I remember and, that. and the proceeds. That's Clifford Meth. I think so. he did some stuff to benefit Dave Cockrum around that time too. So yeah, a guy who obviously has been around comics for a while. I don't know much else about him, but I did would see his name in the early two thousands online yeah. for those benefit books that you mentioned. Yeah. And then they have their serialization of a couple of strips. Page 63. Page 64. <laughs> Same strip. You guys are not paying attention at home. It's a little misprint there. What was, were they running Spider-Man? Yeah. Something didn't show up on time. Despite the Spider-Man. trying to yeah, track yeah, it down. Yeah, they, they say at the very beginning, like, uh, despite them cashing our checks, uh, we didn't get the, uh, the Spider-Man strips by the due date. So... We always say this is the guy. This is the guy who won comics. <laughs> yeah, you know what's interesting though, because like it, it is it is uh, bags and boards, but the the uh, accepted OG was um, Bill Bell, Bob Bell. Yeah, no, was, I don't know. Was the Bob Bell? But this is Bill Cool, so this is a different fella. And I wonder which guy's the dude responsible for those uh, those real thick. Uh, plastics that like turn kind of orange that from at, at, that you would see at the flea markets it's a know? good question the three mil is pretty thin but the plastic you know i don't know what materials these are being made from if it's really plastic versus mylar or whatever you know they were working out different methods of making these things and trying to make them archival and probably a couple of speed bumps in the development of the comic book bag and probably we've said more than we already <laughs> should regarding this topic but Man, those are the guys who made some bank out of comics. That's it, man. You saw the prices. So there's your back cover kind of highlighting what is inside, but in color. And um, that concludes the Comics Journal 38. Ed, any, any other thoughts or anything else to add to this topic? I am having a ball going through these these comics journals. And uh, I will continue to to ask the question of the, of the kayfabers. Uh, are you guys as into it as we are? Uh, do we go to Comics Journal 39 next? Do we jump just randomly to uh, an uh, Amazing Heroes 1? What do we do, man? Uh, I'm all for continuing this because we are building a story. And the story is the DC explosion to implosion that's going to happen. And then what happens there is the diaspora of creative talent that jumps over to Marvel to like really change the, sh the shape of, uh, of that company. Jim Shooter takes over. That should be coming. I don't know when he starts, but that ought to be coming up, I think, pretty soon. Like, he's there in the late 70s, so this is the late 70s. And it's fascinating, the stuff that, like, Bucky O'Hare was supposed to be a DC comic. You know, it was going to be an answer, it was going to be an answer to uh, Howard the Duck, uh, Star Slayer. You know, like, Mike Grell already had a hit with Warlord, with DC. He was going to make Star Slayer uh, um, a DC book as part of the explosion sell that off and of course he'll explore that at pacific comics and then first comics that's the other story that i'm interested in is just kind of seeing the continued rise of these retail outlets and yeah. distributors that serve them and then the comics that 
come in and fill this, see this opportunity and take advantage of it. So totally, because like there's a lot happening in comics at this stage, and and at this stage they don't know it. It's all seedlings. Yes, and and it's just going to continue to grow and and, and bear fruit. So maybe we just answered our own question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do control the <laughs> what we're talking about. But yeah, I am curious to hear everybody's reaction because this is a certainly going back a generation from from say the wizard coverage. And uh, it's interesting, like, that's a pretty small time span. You know, from this to Wizard is 13, 14 years. It's, it's not a big jump. Yeah, and we, and we, got, we got several bubbles uh, to, to, to grow from this, man, uh, in, in, including Fantagraphics publishing more than just this. Yeah, yeah, a lot of good stuff coming up. Okay, Fabers, like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell so that we can notify you when new videos are available we put videos out on the daily and uh the cartoonist kayfabe patreon is a place where you can join up and get all those videos before anybody else uh the king kayfabers have access to our uh live recording stream so that they can hang out with us as we record these videos we are going to be at baltimore comic-con second weekend in september but ultimately the vids are brought to you by the books that we make and uh, the hip-hop family tree omnibus is coming to you 504 pages man just give that thing a little look through jimmy uh super proud of the book uh, 140 pages of extras in there and it is coming to you in time for christmas uh, also there is the x-men grand design trilogy coming to you in time for uh the holidays and red room is the current concern uh red room trigger warnings red room the Anti-Social Network and the current issues are Crypto Killers. Trade paperback of Crypto Killers coming to you in uh, early January. Jimmy, what books do you got going on? True Crime Funnies, I recently self-published and sold out of the first print run. I am reprinting those now. We should have those back in fall stock, but you can still read them. They're available on my website as a PDF along with several other zines and mini comics that you can download. They are also available to my patrons at all levels. So you can join me on Patreon and you can read True Crime Funnies along with any of my other recent and upcoming work. Uh, my other works that are available include The Plain Janes for the young adult readers in your life, Street Angel Deadliest Girl Alive from Image Comics, was out of print for a while, back in print, some of the best comics I ever made. And I don't know why I haven't been showing this one off, but my Hulk Grand Design, oversized treasury, you can see that glorious bright green for the Hulk radiation on the cover. Uh, another one of these comics that I spent a lot of time with, very proud of. And uh, these are available now while supplies last. So pick those up from your local comic shop or wherever you buy books. Give the Kayfabers a couple other ways that they can support the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel, Jimmy. Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe e-newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts, merchandise, hats, fanny packs, stickers, mugs, and more at our spread shop. That link is also under this video. All good ways to support the channel. Give them those marching gorgeous, Jimmy, and we'll be on our way. Read more comics.